and welcome to Jiu-Jitsu 22. I'm Tish Durkin, and my pervasive narrative knocker over for today is the GOP is terrible on the economy. So terrible, in fact, that I'm going to have to dedicate more than one episode to detailing how terrible. What? Everybody thinks the GOP is great on the economy. All the polls show it. They might be god-awful on voting rights and reproductive rights and climate change, but if you're mostly worried about your little old pocketbook, you want the grand old party. And these days, who isn't mostly worried about their little old pocketbook? After all, no matter what color or gender you are, how you feel about fossil fuels or vaccine mandates or Vladimir Putin, whether or not you ever seek an abortion, you need to feed, clothe, and house yourself and your family, and you want to save and build toward the future. Even if you admire the Democrats for having nice, soft hearts on matters of social justice, when times are tough, that stuff feels kind of optional. Republicans are the ones with the hard heads for business and commerce and capital gains this and marginal rate that. Especially at moments of economic uncertainty, such as the moment we are in right now, the GOP seems like the ticket. That's a ticket that should be tossed. To me, Saying the Republicans are better than Democrats on the economy is like saying that Ohio is the West. At one time, this was true, or at least it was possible to argue that it was. But that was a long, long time ago. For decades now, the reality of GOP fecklessness and recklessness as regards the economy has been increasingly at odds with the myth of mastery. And yet, election cycle after election cycle, up to and including this one, that myth continues to work its political magic. It's long past time for a dispelling. Before I get on that, though, I will clarify. Just about every one of the economic issues I'm going to mention is highly complex and highly susceptible to oversimplification by all sides. I am not trying to depict the Democrats as totally right about any, let alone all, of this, even if they agreed among themselves which they don't. All that is beside my very modest point, which is, if you happen to be one of the millions of nice, normal Americans who now has a split screen in your head when you think of the current trumped-up GOP, if you see a huge disconnect between the party's madness when it comes to white nationalism and whatnot versus its calm, cool, collected competence on the economy, if you have the idea that while they can be downright scary on the one, they're the only safe bet on the other. I want to invite you to reconsider that idea, because it's really not based on anything. If you look at the GOP approach to macroeconomic policy, such as the national debt and international trade, if you look at the economic picture in states that have most fervently embraced GOP anti-tax orthodoxy, Perhaps most important, if you look at the very significant impact on the economy of strong GOP positions on issues other than the economy, you will see the GOP has opted for wacky overworkable as surely on the economy as it has in every other area. And it has taken pretty much the same path to doing so. Certain orthodoxies and tendencies took root 40 or 50 years ago, sometimes with good reason and to at least partially positive effect, but then proceeded to become ever less pragmatic, ever more ideological, and ever further removed from reality. Under Trump and now Trumpism, the GOP message on the economy, like its message on so many other things, 
has no relationship to reality at all. I think if you were a fly on the wall and you listened closely, you'd have heard the GOP's screws starting to loosen during a chat that took place in 1974. After a meeting at Gerald Ford's White House between an economist called Arthur Laffer and two young bucks called Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. Laffer used a napkin to sketch his curve, illustrating that for purposes of generating revenue for the government, tax rates could be too high as well as too low. In hindsight, it's clear that we would all be a lot better off if somebody had just crumpled up that napkin and thrown it in the nearest trash can. Not because taxes can't be too high, of course they can but because ever since Republicans have been using that damn curve as an excuse for pretending that taxes can't be too low. At the same time, though, spending is fine, provided it is spending on something that Republicans like. In 1980, Ronald Reagan rode into the White House on a horse that, fiscally speaking, was trying to run in two opposite directions, cut taxes and win the Cold War. And so the GOP began to develop the dual personality we've all come to know so well. The fun, champagne and lobster for the Pentagon, but screw the IRS party. And the prudent, what kind of debt are we leaving for our grandchildren, fiscal responsibility party. Logically speaking, that should not be possible. But the GOP approach to economic policy is not logical. It's spiritual. And that not Keynes versus Friedman, not supply side versus demand side, not X amount of taxation versus Y amount of spending. That is the main difference between the two parties. Take their respective approaches to taxation. The democratic approach to taxation is rational, which is not to say that it is always right. But for all but the very leftiest Democrats, taxation is a means to an end. And you can adjust your view of it depending on how that means is serving that end. There'll be fights over any adjustments, but those fights will be about tangibles, how much revenue should be raised, how well it's being spent, and so on. For Republicans, taxation is the devil. Therefore, they treat taxes as inherently morally wrong and tax cuts as inherently morally right. Now, As a practical matter, if you view taxation as a tool rather than a talisman, you can imagine circumstances in which tax cuts, even tax cuts that immediately and disproportionately benefit the very wealthy, can be appropriate. If it's 1980 and the economy is mired in stagflation and the top marginal rate on individual income is 70% and the corporate tax rate is up in the 40s, you might agree with Reagan that tax cuts make sense. You might not keep cutting, especially while adding 35% to the defense budget and tripling the national debt, but we'll give Ron a pass on that for now. By contrast, if it's 2016 and the economy is making a steady little recovery from the Great Recession of 2008 and the top marginal rate for individuals is down to 37% and the corporate tax rate is in the 30s, you probably wouldn't see a giant tax cut for the rich as an urgent imperative. But Donald Trump did one anyway, because for Republicans, tax cuts to the rich are always an urgent imperative. At the state level, Republicans have demonstrated that there can be something worse than deep tax cuts without deep spending cuts, and that is deep tax cuts with deep spending cuts. In Kansas, beginning in 2012, Republican lawmakers, at the behest of Republican then-Governor Sam Brownback, slashed taxes by something like 30% 
on the theory that this, in and of itself, would act, as Brownback famously put it, like a shot of adrenaline to the Kansas economy. The result was a lot more like cardiac arrest. Business did not boom, but the public sector, including the public schools, did go bust. Anyway, the long and short of it is, there can be conditions that indicate tax cuts, including those that benefit the wealthy. But absent those conditions, those tax cuts don't grow anything but budgetary shortfalls and social inequality. To which the GOP response is to stick cotton balls in their ears and say, la, 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 la. The only economic condition required for Republicans to pass a big fat upper crust tax cut is that Republicans get elected. And they're great on the economy? Of course, Ronald Reagan also fervently believed in another economic tenet that is a much more positive legacy. Free trade has lifted millions of human beings out of poverty and granted ordinary people the world over access to goods and services, the quality and quantity of which would have dazzled previous generations. Free trade has also devastated entire branches of the American workforce. Traditionally, it was Republicans who extolled the benefits of free trade, while Democrats emphasized the downside. As of the 1990s, Democrats started moving toward the Republican position, most famously in Bill Clinton's championing of NAFTA. And of course, that was part of why Democrats started to lose their footing with workers in the manufacturing sector, whom they are perpetually desperate to woo back, without alienating workers in other sectors for whom trade has been a great blessing, not a curse. To maximize all that is good about free trade while minimizing all that is bad is really hard. Well, not everybody thinks it's hard. We want to build, create, and grow more products in our country using American labor, American goods, and American grit. When we purchase products made in the USA, the profits stay here, the revenue stays here, and the jobs, maybe most importantly of all, they stay right here in the USA. That was Donald Trump addressing a group of business boosters at a Manufacturing Jobs in the Economy event at the White House in 2017. So what happened next? In December of 2017, as noted, the Republican Congress passed, and then President Trump signed, a tax cut. Many critics have pointed out that this amounted to a gigantic bonanza for the wealthiest Americans at the expense of everybody else. Less noted has been the fact that this new law reduced corporate taxes on foreign profits by more than half, from 28% to 10%, thus creating a huge incentive for multinational corporations to move their operations and their jobs overseas. That's not all. Between the summer of 2018 and 2019, Trump used a form of executive privilege to start a trade war. He placed a 25% tariff on steel imported not just from China, but from India, Mexico, Europe, and Canada. This amounted to a 25% tax. Yes, my T-word allergic Republican friends, a tax on any American company that used any of that imported steel to make anything. The result? An estimated 175,000 fewer manufacturing jobs, 26,000 fewer in Ohio alone, and if Moody's Analytics is anything to go by, some 300,000 fewer American jobs overall. Meanwhile, of course, all those countries retaliated. The value of U.S. soybean exports fell by almost two-thirds, from $12.2 billion to $4.5 billion. To make up for the losses, 
the Trump administration issued some $28 billion in direct farm subsidies. Okay, so the Republican president starts a trade war, including against America's own allies, that backfires on American food producers to whom he then shovels billions of taxpayer dollars that those producers would have been able to earn on their own if he hadn't done anything. To a shocking degree, given their supposed free trade, free market bona fides, the Republican Party goes right along. And they're great on the economy? Enough said. The GOP is bad on taxes and bad on trade. In my next episode, I'll talk about how they are bad on domestic development and bad on all kinds of issues that aren't the economy, but that deeply affect the economy. Meanwhile, don't let anybody try to tell you they're actually good. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll check out other episodes of Jiu-Jitsu 22. Midterm minis drop on Mondays, full episodes on Thursday mornings.